Today's scripture reading is from Genesis 3, 1 through 24. Um, Hear the word of the Lord. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I have commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and, his, and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And he drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Welcome to Grace and Peace. My name is Vincent Hoppy. If I have not met you, I would love to meet you. Uh, 
You know, we're continuing in our uh, study of the book of Genesis. Uh, happy Groundhog, Groundhog Day, you know, just, just kind of a big deal, right? Uh, there's also that Super Bowl thing going on, but I want to talk about Ground, Groundhog Day. Why? Because uh, Bill Murray. Uh, it is a <laughs> that's right. Uh, it, it's a great movie, and if you are a philosophy nerd like me, you would know that it has a lot to do with existentialism, and uh, now you're like, I'm zoning out already, bro, so bring it back. Okay, so anyway, so Groundhog's Day, and then also, do you know it's like a weird palindrome, 0202? 2020 that's it's like same reverse and forward it's kind of crazy anyway so yesterday started off christianity explored if you're unfamiliar with christianity explored you need to talk to chelsea and john i hear they packed out the house at the exchange which is awesome it's great to hear how god is working through people who are just who desire to hear have other people hear about jesus that Jesus really is the healing that our hearts need, and they are convinced by that. If you haven't gotten involved and you want to get involved, it would be great to see you at Christianity Explored. Also coming up is our one-year anniversary on March 1st. It will be be one whole year that we've been meeting as a church, and it has been a privilege to be the pastor of this and to start this with some great godly people who are working hard uh, to to, uh, bring the gospel, to bring healing into this area. We need to be healed because we know that our hearts are broken. We know that they don't work the way that they are meant to do that. So we bring healing here at Grace and Peace by connecting with God through worship here, by caring for others. We do that through our city groups and also cultivating in the city. But why in the world do we need healing And so this story, the story that we're reading right now here in Genesis, is the reason why. David, he's a bit of a restless wanderer, this person. He's bright, he's attractive, he's musically talented, he was even on America's Got Talent. He was adopted from Korea, though, and he always felt out of sorts in every situation. He always felt homeless in one way or another. He has a desire and a hunger to travel and experience the world. Maybe there he will feel at home, he says. After college, he went into an engineering career to make money and chase the American dream, only to find out that uh, that probably wasn't his dream. He wanted to explore, so he cashed out everything and started playing music. His adventures have brought him to Las Vegas, Europe, cruise ships, and now Southeast Asia. In each place has met him with new adventures, new sexual partners, new opportunities. But every six months or so, he knows that he's still wanting. He's still restless. He's just a wanderer on the road, but a road to where? Is he wandering to nowhere? Alicia, she was beautiful. And every person told her from a young age that she was beautiful, but she never felt like it. She felt alienated in her own skin. Her heart longs to feel beautiful, to feel worthwhile. She's tried sex, drugs, but those feelings, neither of them can calm the storm in her heart. No one's judgment is strong enough to undo the undercurrent of shame that she feels day in and day out. She longs for judgment, a judgment that will end her exile and alienation. 
Brian, I've known for a while now, and he was a student of mine. He works for a government agency. He's always been smart, national merit scholar, a graduate from an Ivy League level school, involved in his church youth group, but he's gay. That's where he feels the sting and alienation. That's where he feels homeless the most. He hasn't told many people. He's lonely. He's afraid of being found out. He doesn't, feel like, uh, he doesn't feel like being affirmed is the solution that he needs. If he's just affirmed, then it, he still will have to wrestle day in and day out with this undercurrent of guilt and shame. Why does he feel this way? But while people are just saying, oh, you're okay, just do whatever's true to you. And so he's like, I don't think that's the way. And nor is the solution to become heterosexual. He can't just pray the gay away. You see, for Brian, neither offer him home, the home that from, from his inter, eternal alienation that he feels. He yearns for home. And deep down, in the past few years, he's realized that he knows that Jesus is home that he's always longed for. He places his desires and loves on Jesus. He knows what he most really wants is to be satisfied in Jesus. And so he walks daily saying no to his desires and being filled in the person of Jesus. And whenever he's lonely, I get a text message from him. And we respond back and forth to help him with the loneliness, to chase away those desires that he has. And what Brian has realized that David and Lisha hasn't, is that on the road of life, you will always be wandering without an, without an acknowledged destination. Because home, what is home? Home is Jesus. You see, we're all like these characters we just talked about. We're all like Bono from U2 saying, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. In the end, what we really want, what we really need is God. But we are wanderers in a desert of exile. You see, we sin. And, and all of our sin is a result of the first sin. It's a result also of our broken hearts. You know, we are restless wanderers on this journey. And how do we get home? Some philosophers tell us just to accept life as uh, life on the road. That's just the way it is. You know, you were made a wanderer. You were, you know, YOLO, be true to yourself. Or like some others have suggested, your purpose is to do whatever makes you happy. Uh, whatever makes you ha- but what if what, whatever makes you happy crushes your family and ultimately hurts yourself and destroys your body? Can we really just live in the moment? Can we really not worry about the past? Can we really live with no regrets? Some people might say, oh, you know what you need to do? Just distract yourself with the next adventure, the next romance, the next hobby, the next diet. But never ask, well, it's funny, I really want like a Cheetos diet, but they don't really have that one for me. But anyway, but never ask why or do any of this in the first place. Just distract yourself. But how do we find a home for our wandering hearts? And Augustine says in a prayer to God, uh, Augustine, Augustine, I don't know how you say that exactly. Is it like Augustine, like Ovaltine, just confusing 
Our hearts are restless until we find our rest in thee. It is in God whom our hearts were made for. It is where we were made to find our cosmic home. And Genesis tells us that we cannot get home without knowing where we are. And we can't know where we are without knowing where we have been. And so in a lot of ways, it's like giving a map to a two-year-old, okay? Here's the problem with giving a map to a two-year-old. They don't know how to read it. And so you tell, you know, you need to go find your home to a two-year-old. They're never going to find their home. No two-year-old can ever find their home because they can't read the map. And so what Genesis is doing for us is trying to show us the way by showing us where we have been. So in a lot of ways, we end up like a crew rower. You ever watch crew? Especially if you're like Ivy League style. You're like, yeah, I totally know what that is. And, uh, you know, they, they sit backwards in the boat and they can only go forward by facing backwards. And so Genesis is trying to say, hey, you must look behind you in order to go forward. Or as the philosopher Kierkegaard says, life is only lived going forward, but is only understood looking backward. How did we get here? Why is this world terrible? Why do loved ones die? Why do we get sick? Why does my job suck? Why can't I get along with my roommates or with my spouse? Why do I feel this constant nagging feeling like I'm homeless and I just need to find a place where I could fit in? Why do we feel what Heidegger calls unheimlich homelessness? Genesis says, let's look backward. The Bible tells us that we cannot know where we are going without knowing what was in the past. What does the past tell us? What does Genesis tell us? It tells us that our greatest problem in the world is that we are all in need of a new heart. We are restless wanderers and exiles in this world because our hearts were made to be loved by God and to love Him. But along the way, our internal compasses, our hearts, they were broken. They were broken by rebellion against the true King, God Himself with whom we were made to delight in. We only get back to God by God coming to us. We don't find our way home by ourselves, but rather it is home coming to us in Jesus Christ. We can't desire what is good and right without having the mechanism for our desires, our hearts renewed. And finding a home outside of Jesus is what the Bible calls sin. But what is the Genesis, what is Genesis in this story, traditionally called the fall, tell us about the problem of the world? The problem is sin. It corrupts everything, poisoning and breaking everything it attaches itself to, including our hearts. Our hearts are like God's GPS system to lead us back to Him, to want and desire Him more than anything else in creation. And this is how the archetypal man, Adam and Eve, and woman, Adam and Eve, uh, this is how their hearts broke. And why all of our hearts are broken. Why we all feel hopeless and homeless. This is why the default mode of every human heart is not to find God and follow Him, but to be selfish. To be self-focused. To be lost. Sin started out our homelessness. And it works out from there. So the question today that we will answer and what this text answers is what is the anatomy of a broken heart? A broken heart is a deceived heart. 
A broken heart is a rebellious heart, and a broken heart is a corrupt heart, but it is only made new by a pierced heart. Let's look at the deceived heart. The story starts with probably what should have ended the story and should have been the end of the story. Ends up with this serpent who is more crafty. And as soon as this serpent starts talking, the end of the story should have been squash or splat. Why? Because Adam was to care for the garden. And as soon as something starts talking or doing anything out of the ordinary, you ought to take care of it. How in the world did the serpent suddenly get into God's garden, God's meeting place. The ending should have been, and the serpent said, uh, splat. That should have been it. But that isn't what happened, is it? Right? Uh, we find out that through scripture, that this creature is a created being and once was part of the heavenly court, but rebelled. But beyond that, it's just kind of conjecture. That's all we know. He's kind of like this mythical creature, uh, hence why they use serpent. He seems to be like a mouthpiece for who, who will later be revealed throughout scripture as Satan, the deceiver, the evil one, the one who lies, the enemy of God's people. His deception soon starts as soon as he opens his mouth. He says, did God really say? First notice that he's using the impersonal God. He's not using the covenantal name of God, but rather he's using this impersonal view of God. So he says in the Hebrew, Elohim. Did Elohim really say? Instead of saying, did Yahweh Elohim? Yahweh Elohim was his personal name. And so what Satan does in this part is that he creates a bit of distance. It's really easy to rebel against someone you really, to like a faceless person. Here's a foreign deity. Did some really foreign deity say this? No. Rather, instead, if he would have said, Did Yahweh Elohim, the God who formed and made you, the one who walks with you in the cool of the day, the one who knows every fiber of your being, the one who loves you, who wants personal relationship with you? No. Satan's like, I don't want none of that crowding what I want to get done here. And so he starts to deceive her by using this impersonal name and she falls for it because immediately you notice that she starts using Elohim as well and negates using his covenantal name, his relational name, his personal name. We see the serpent uh, start to mistrust then God's word. And so he says, did God actually say? And here's where uh, many of our doubts begin. It is in seeing that God is uh, not really trustworthy. He sets up this world, and I don't think he really has my best in mind. Notice the serpent isn't going so much for doctrine or thinking. Oh no, he's going after her desires. He's going after her heart. He wants her to want to disobey God. He makes it sound logical. He makes, takes all of her reasoning in order so that she would want to want to disobey. He allures her desires by tempting her and, and being divine, so that she could be divine-like, by being independent, thinking that she could be her own woman. She don't need no man. She don't need God. What you need is to be autonomous. And so here's the deal. All of our reasoning, 
all of our logic, all of our theology is in service to whatever we desire most. It's in service to the heart. You know, I will come up with any reason for the desires of my heart. I have a compulsion to buy things just without ever regard, with any regard for anyone else. And so do you know what I do? I start to, I want something, right? I want to buy that thing. But what do I do? I start reasoning then. Well, of course, it's on sale. Of course I can get it. It's great. You know, it'll look good in my house, or it'll be a really great bike. You know, I need this bike part. That's usually what it is for me. I need this bike part. You know, and so there's this compulsion, and so I start to reason according to my desire. And what, the, what, what a deceived heart, it, it's all about this deceived heart. Every heart is deceived. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Instead of trusting God's life-giving word and wanting that, we start to see that as a straitjacket. A deceived heart is suspicious to any authority or word over us because we don't want it. We believe that God, God's laws are restrictions. They're impeding our super highway to the good life. You know, here's a question. What if we no longer were suspicious about everything else, about every authority? What if we started being suspicious of our own hearts? What if we turned it over on, our, on its head? Instead of following our hearts, we ought to, every once in a while, like, well, what's your motivation? What, what, what do you really want? What do you really love out of this thing? We need to start talking back to ourselves instead of listening to the guttural instincts of our heart. We need to question and be suspicious of our heart. You know, what we need to see is we need to ask and realize that we will not be satisfied with anything but God. We should stop and ask ourselves and be suspicious and say, will that relationship really get me what I want? Will my child getting into Harvard be everything that, it, that it's cracked up to be? Will that really satisfy? Will that job really make it better? Will lying all my taxes really work? You know, if you're a Christian, it says you have a new heart, but your heart still carries the habits of the flesh. You must relearn. You must feed your desires for God. So we must fight the lies and temptations every day by exercising by worship. We need to become hungry for God and to satisfy ourselves in the person of Jesus Christ. We need to see him as good and more beautiful and more attractive and more desirable than anything else in the world. Otherwise, we're being deceived. You see, a new, uh, any Christian can be like Israel in the wilderness. They were headed somewhere. They were wandering. Yes, but they knew where the destination is. God promised to get them to the finish line. And God promises to get you to the finish line. But we could still wander. It's still hard. This life isn't the way it was meant to be. But also, the broken heart is a rebellious heart. 
The human heart by default is rebellious, meaning that the heart of man is in allegiance to self and not God. To be in allegiance to self is to be in league with the serpent. You have allied yourself with the serpent. That is why in Genesis 3.15, when talking to the serpent, God says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the serpent, between her offspring, singular, and your offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise your heel. So what God is doing is he's going to put this uh, way to get in between. He's going to nudge himself in between the work of the serpent where they start, started becoming an allegiance to him and they have a pact. And the rest of the Bible, though, talks about these two seeds or offsprings. There's two ways you can go. Jesus says to the Pharisees in John eight forty four, he says, you're of your father the devil. When Jesus says, like, warm and cuddly Jesus says, you are of the devil, y'all better, like, say what? Um, that, is, that is interesting. How is this working out? And this is what he says. Your will is to do the will of your father. It's selfish, self-preserving. They made all these rules to make themselves look good. But deep down, they were not good. In Ephesians 2, Paul says something similar to all those who've become Christians, who have started to follow Jesus. He says, you were dead in the trespasses you once walked, following the course of this world. And then he says, following the prince of the power of the air, which means the ruler of this world. You are following him. And so what happens is as soon as Eve takes and eats and gives it to her husband and he eats, they became in league, not with God, but with the serpent. And so this is cosmic rebellion. The human heart isn't just sinful, but it is in rebellion against God. By allying with the serpent and trusting in his word, Adam and Eve entered into cosmic rebellion. They partook of the serpent's word against God's word and became like him. So you aren't just breaking the rules when you sin. You are breaking God's heart. It's relational. You aren't just leaving him. You're committing cosmic adultery, and I'm guilty of it too. And right now, I think we hear about the sin, and you probably say, yeah, that's me. Why would God want me? But the rest of the story continues that he does want you, and he wanted Adam and Eve and so let's continue reading. So the woman saw that the fruit was good. Notice that she is calling good what God calls bad. She wanted it for food. She sees that it was a delight to the eyes. She began to have an appetite for that than having an appetite for God. She then desired it. She lusted and groaned after it. And she wanted what only God could give her. And what was that? true life and so she went this way she wanted independence she wanted autonomy to have no law but but to be a law for herself to have the knowledge of good and evil is to make one independent of God's judgments to make up laws for ourselves 
But to make up laws for yourself puts you in rebellion against the laws of God and sets up this kingdom of self versus the kingdom of God. So from here, the human heart has been in a power struggle against God. We like to tell God, hey man, it's my way or the highway. Or as my grandpa once said, after, after getting drunk at a party and getting into his old 1954 Plymouth, he starts going down the wrong way in Jersey City on a one-way street and it's snowing. And my dad says, hey, dad, you're going the wrong way. And he says, no, son, there's only one way, my way. And that's what we're all like. There's only one way, God, my way. Or as Augustine or Anne Lamott both say, if the God you worship always agrees with you, you're not worshiping God. You're worshiping yourself. A broken heart is a rebellious heart. And it's also a corrupt heart. A broken heart is a corrupt one. It is rusted. It's like rust that will eat away at metal, so sin will eat away at your soul. And fundamentally, without a good heart, you will only speak out sin. Out of a sinful heart comes, guess what? Not good things, sinful things, right? So Jesus says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks, And Paul quotes and says, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I think he's saying no one does good. I think that's what he's saying. And so this is the bottom line. A corrupt heart can't lead us home. It can't bring us back to God. This is what a theologian has called, or theologians have called total depravity. It's not that we are as bad as we can be or bad as I want to be, uh, a la Dennis Rodman's biography. Anyone read that? That was like the first biography I ever read. Really weird. Uh, but just, just so you know what kind of weird pastor you have. Uh, but that every faculty, total depravity means that every faculty of the human person is infected with a virus of sin to turn us against God. Our hearts don't work like they're supposed to. We can't do anything in our own power to make us right before God. This includes your good works. You can't go to church enough. You can't help the poor enough. You can't pray enough. You can't help grannies across the street enough. You can only get home by home coming to you. So the corrupt heart is a wandering heart, an ashamed heart, and a guilty heart. Those are, those are sub-points. You know, if you're like counting points, they're like, oh no, he gave us the eight-point sermon again. Yeah, it's funny, huh? Uh, it says that man was driven out of the garden. He's a wandering heart. And so humanity's been in exile since the beginning. The entry was barred by the flaming sword of God's judgment. So in this sense, then, every person, every culture, every nation, every regime, every family has been trying to make an effort to gain back to paradise. Why? Because we're all cosmically homeless. We're all yearning for home, and we don't know how to get there. How in the world do we get there? We don't know. 
And so what we do is we set up structures and ways that we can make our home better. We do it through relationships, through romance, through riches, through comfort, through drugs. If even just for a moment I could feel like paradise, then I'll do it. Every heart is a wandering heart. And it shows our corruption. But a corrupt heart is also a shamed heart. Upon eating it, it realizes, it says, then the eyes of both were open, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together to make themselves loincloths, which cover up your private parts, right? And so there's the shameful parts. And this is the reverse of 2.25. In 2.25 it says, they were naked and were not ashamed. Suddenly, they are naked and they're like, oh my goodness, and they're covering up. And so there's shame. They don't want to be found out. They don't want to be known by each other. Then as God comes into the garden, what do they do? They hide behind a bush. And so we have a broken relationship we see with, with each other. There's a lot of shame that we have with each other. There's a lot of shame that we have with God. And there's a lot of problems that we have with this earth as well. And notice also that they are ashamed with themselves. They're alienated with their own person. They have the internal realization when their eyes were open. Shame is the intense feeling of humiliation or distress. It is the fear of being found out, the fear of not being worthy or worthwhile. We say to ourselves, oh my gosh, if they actually knew who, they, who, who I am, then they would not like me. So we go to bed at night keeping all the truth, keeping it in. We don't live authentic lives because we're fearful that someone's going to kick us out. Kick us out if they really knew me. And so what do we do? You know what we do? You know what I do? We like to cover our shame. We do it with religious works. We do it with lots of money, sexual conquests, high-achieving children, we're always saying, like, I'm busy. I'm so busy. Why? Because being high-functioning and always having it together, that's a great way to cover up your shame. You know, no one ever says, how are you doing? Oh, I'm not busy at all. You know, you know, in fact, I feel pretty lazy and feel really rested. No one ever says that. No. They, they co- you cover up your shame by saying, I'm really busy. Don't ask me any questions. See you later, homie. That's what we do. Like, everything's great out here. Car's clean. Everything's wonderful. Leave me alone, homie. Why? Because we're deeply fearful of being found out. Apart from God's grace on your life, all your good works, all your achievements, all your accomplishments, they're just flimsy fig leaves. Everybody knows what you've got underneath. Everybody knows. Here's the deal. You can look to your left and your right and everybody knows. If you're here, it's basically a confession saying, I ain't got it together. You can know me. It's okay. I ain't got anything to hide. No fig leaf is going to hide that. They can't possibly undo the problem of shame in the heart. Hiding behind your achievements is not sufficient in the end. Only God's achievements for you in Jesus Christ can give you sufficient cover. But the corrupt heart is also a guilty heart. 
When the verdict of your life comes in, what will it be? Notice that Adam and Eve were afraid. Apart from God giving you a new heart made by God's recreating work in Jesus, you will be judged. And we should all be afraid. And from the beginning, man's heart is guilty. How do you know? Uh, About the same way I know that all my kids are always guilty. Why? Because as soon as I show up and I cross my arms, I get down at their level, and I look at them, what do they do? They do this. My sister's fault. Uh, if, if you had not left the chocolate out, I wouldn't have been Jade on it. It's your fault. So Adam does exactly what you and I would do. He blames shifts. He says, uh, it was, uh, the woman's fault that you gave me. Ha, ha, look, you two, you did it. Like, come on, man. And don't we all do that? Don't we? We all blame shift. As soon as my wife comes up to me and says, Honey, would you consider maybe that uh, you're not right in this area? I'll be like, what do you mean not right? Are you kidding me? And suddenly I get this like judge, like this this lawyer thing going on. Well, if you would consider the evidence, you would would see that your uh, accusations of me are totally wrong. Let me go over the ways. Uh, First, you left the pot out on the counter. You know, come on. Instead of saying, yes, I did it, what do they do? They say, uh, it was the serpent. It's not my fault. Rather, uh, the responsible thing for Adam to have done as a representative was to say, it was my fault. I failed. I should have squashed the serpent, but I didn't. I failed. Adam should have shouldered it all. And he should have died to himself at that point for the rest of creation. Instead, another will do his job, and he would be truly innocent. See, he rejects his responsibility. And isn't that the default mode of us all? Whenever we sense our guilt, instead of accepting it and being responsible, we blame shift. Like, it was my circumstances. Oh, it's my family. It's my DNA. You know, and so we blame everything else. We rise to our defense to give a record of our good. Like, yeah, sure, I did that, but I I also help old ladies. You know, there you go. We rise to our defense. We slave all day at work or home. And we think that some way that through that slaving that we're going to outweigh all our guilt. See, their punishment was creation in reverse. And it points out humanity can't possibly be independent for God. They were to hear this punishment and say, oh my gosh, I need God. Why? Because the ground wasn't going to do what it was created to do. They would no longer have this direct dominion. It wasn't going to bring forth fruit for them. It wasn't going to be easy. They were to be dependent. It was going to fight with them. And instead of it bringing out fruit, no, it was going to swallow them whole. And they were going to die in a hole in the ground. They were taken out from the dirt. And one day, all of us will be placed back in. And the punishment for the woman, her desire was, this says, to be contrary or against her husband, but he must rule over her. What does that mean? It means this. Husbands and wives are going to fight. And if you're a child, you know that husbands and wives fight. You hear mom and dad do it all the time. 
They weren't going to, there wasn't going to be much love and respect. No, there's going to be accusation and blame. How'd you like to make that as a book? Accusation and blame. That'd be fun. Anyway, in the end, they must die. The ground was going to swallow them up. And instead of being confirmed into immortality, the only immortality that they would have would be through progeny, and it was going to hurt. But that is the way that God was going to save them. You see, they can't have the fruit of the tree of life because it would confirm them in the state that they were in. They are not to re-enter the garden. They are cut off from the source of life. But God doesn't end it there. Judgment doesn't get the last word. God does. And how? The only way to cure a broken heart is to have a pierced heart. Ezekiel 36 says, I will, God says to his people, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, from all your corruption. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you all the things that you, your heart attaches itself to. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. But to have a new heart, our old ones need to be pierced. To get back home, home must come to us. We must die. Our hearts must be pierced. I heard this story from another pastor, uh, so you can go check the validity of it. I don't know. There was a black pastor in Detroit who had a son. His son grew up in the home. It was a religious home, but he wanted to rebel and throw off all the old shackles of his father's religion. He went off to the city and got lost there, got lost into the world of sex and drugs and alcohol. Though his father kept looking for him and searching for him, Every once in a while he hear reports from friends in the city that he was, you know, around, that they had seen him. His son had gotten caught up in crack cocaine. And while he was coming down from a high, he'd find himself in a rundown apartment or a warehouse that was abandoned. He'd gone as far as he could get from his father, but his father was never far from him. Home was always close. One day, his father learned that the son could be found at a warehouse coming down from his high. The father immediately came after his son. And in that day, walked into the crack house, fearing the worst, that he was going to find his son dead. Found his son face down, surrounded by bodies of other people, just laying there, coming down from their high in a corner. But instead of beating him, instead of waking up and scolding him, the father came down, got on one knee, looked at his son, touched his head gently, and kissed him, and got up and left. A few days later, the son comes home. And the father asks, what made you come home? And the son says, Dad, when you came to me, I was awake. I just let you kiss me. And all my friends saw it. What they saw was love. 
And at that moment, his, the son's heart was pierced by the love of the father. That he would not give up. And what we know is that Jesus is God's kiss. God doesn't even end the punishments of Adam and Eve without giving hope. In Genesis 3.15, God put forward the first good news, what nerds call the proto-evangelion. God would undo the poison of the serpent which seeped into the heart of man. He would put enmity. But then it says, in a remarkable show of kinship, it says this, They have become like us. It says, verse 21, And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. That in these garments of skin, where fig leaves were insufficient, they could have the sufficient covering for all their shame and guilt. That one could be substituted for them. That one could die insufficiently clothe them so how are our hearts pierced on the cross we see jesus's skin for our skin we see him ripped apart we see all the punishment of sin come down on him and at the moment that the spear goes through jesus's heart clean and cold and we realize that jesus is dying not for some abstract person out there, but when we realize that he's dying for me, that he's substituting for me. And all at once, we are pierced, clean and cold. That the flaming sword of judgment that guarded the way to paradise has come down on Jesus, meaning that we can have paradise because it came in Jesus. And that's the story of the Bible. That even in our sin, God does not leave us. He doesn't quit on us. For the good news says that even while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. And when he is resurrected on the third day, he opens true paradise so that your wandering heart can be homeless no more. And if you're a Christian, that's what we feast on day in and day out. And we come back here every Sunday so that we would know that we are not homeless in this world. And we will not wander forever because home has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you that you have sent Jesus to save us from our sin, to bring back rebels and prodigals and those who live by the religious good deeds, you save them and you love them. Lord, we thank you for the work of Jesus. That his skin was my skin. That in Jesus he lived the life I was supposed to live. And he died the death we were all supposed to die. So that in him we might live and have a new creation that our hearts may be renewed so that it may be quickened to beat again to the rhythm 
and the rhythm of God so that our hearts may wander no more and would find home and rest in God himself. Lord, help us to rest now and proclaim that all we have is Jesus. Help us now to come to him, to put forth our hands, to take of him, because he's all we've got and all we need. He is home, he is paradise, he's everything. Lord, let that be our confession now as we eat and drink in this meal. Amen. The Lord be with you. We lift up, our, or lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. Here at Grace and Peace, we come forward for the Lord's Supper. And we are invited into the paradise, into the feast. Not because of the things that we have done. For if we were all to be shown clear, like every one list of our things have been done, you would know and you would see my list and be like, he ain't worthy. The only reason why we are worthy to come to this meal is because of the work of Jesus Christ for us. That he's the truly innocent one who didn't shift blame but took blame on himself. That his life has become our life and that is what we proclaim in this meal and so we come forward, you'll get bread, you take it and you eat it, and then you'll be offered uh, grape juice on the outer ring or wine on the inner rings. You take and you drink in celebration of the work that Jesus Christ has done, that you are his, that paradise has come to you. Uh, if you uh, Gluten-free bread is up here in the front. But if you do not proclaim Jesus Christ, if you have not professed him as your Lord and Savior, if he is not the one who's taken sin for you. If he was not made to be a rebel for you because of your rebellion. Then we ask that you don't take this. Observe. It's alright. If you have questions, come and ask me. But this is a meal of faith. We don't want you to do anything inauthentic to where you are. But if you place your faith in Jesus. If you profess him as Lord and Savior then this meal is for you. Since this is a meal of faith, let us proclaim our faith is signed and sealed in this sacrament. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. On the night he was betrayed, after giving thanks, Jesus took bread and broke it and said, This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, after supper was ended, Jesus took the cup and said, This cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. This is the new heart. Drink of it as often as you do in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and we drink of this cup, we proclaim his death until he comes again. Almighty Father, I pray that you would meet us in broken bread and poured out drink for the sake of your name, for the glory of your name, so that you would be known, that Jesus Christ would be known as the one who takes away our sins, the Redeemer. Lord, nourish our faith now. Let us sing with joy. Let us sing with expectancy to our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer. Amen.